This is the National Archive. It's a small cut granite building in the forecourt's enclosure. And we're here to visit a place in which the memories of the nation are stored. Now these are all the official and administrative memories, court records, records from the medieval equivalent of the Department of Finance, wills, deeds, you name it. It's all here. Uh, correction, it's not quite all here because on the 30th of June, 1922, this building was the site of what must be the ultimate archivist's nightmare. For on that day, two heavy mines exploded in the stack, cascading parchment all over the city of Dublin and obliterating quite a considerable amount of the nation's official memory. Well, imagine that we're back in 1922. We've just come up the stone staircase to the very top of the building, and we have a sniper's eye view out across the River Liffey. The window would have been barricaded with bits and pieces of parchment, official records, etc., being used as sandbags. Under the window, if I were a sniper, I would have had a wooden platform made up of bits of office furniture on which I'd be perched with my Leonfield waiting. Who actually occupied the building? The building was occupied by the irregulars, i.e. the people who didn't like the treaty. And they snuck in on the night of the 13th of April, i.e. Holy Thursday night, 1922. Security was lax. In they came, occupied the entire forecourt's enclosure. Now, the problem about the public records office was very simple. It was on the western extremity of the enclosure, and that was where attack was likely across Church Street. You were open, you were vulnerable, the place had to be fortified. And so too had Chancery Street. So what they did was they put two socking great big heavy mines in the western end of the record treasury of the record office and two ginormous mines in the old land judge's court, which is now the land registry office. That's round at the other side of the building. That's round at the other side of the building, and the basic concept is there. You waited until you saw the whites of their eyes as they were coming across the streets, and then, kaboom, okay, you went up with it. A lot of public records went up with it. Land registry documents went up with it. But they didn't get past you. We're now at the top of the building. We're at the very and top. And all these windows at the front would have faced across towards the, uh, the Liffey. That's right. Across towards Christchurch and so on. That's right. So the, so the guys who took the building over, they would have barricaded these windows? Well, they had to. There was a frigate on the River Liffey. It was a gunboat we had borrowed from the British. Now, we borrowed this when we realised that we were going to have to bombard the forecourts in order to dislodge the irregulars. And the government took the decision to commence bombardment on the 28th of June. So there was two days of fairly intensive bombardment, both from the frigate and from land-based batteries. The land fire was so inaccurate that the Royal Hospital at Kilmainham was hit, and it was also inaccurate enough to sink the borrowed frigate, which did not exactly make us flavour of the month with the British government. But, I mean, this was shooting oneself in the foot in all directions, really. Yes. Now, whether it was as a consequence of the bombardment that the mines in the Public Records Office and the Land Judges Court went up, or whether they were actually detonated physically, we don't know. My guess is they were detonated physically because by the First World War, fireproof detonators had in fact been perfected. So I don't think incidental fire would actually have set off mines, but 
they were very, very big mines, so it is possible that some of the explosion was caused by spontaneous combustion. We simply don't know. I say deliberate, other people might say accidental. Now, to come back to the irregulars who were taken over the public record office, here they are in the building, and they're barricading themselves in. So they take what's to hand. They take everything they can get their paws on that can be jammed up against the front windows. And most of this happens to be 19th century transcripts and calendars of medieval documents. So they're rammed into the windows. And as a matter of fact, we'll see them later on, but there are some beautiful examples of bullet-riddled manuscripts. Well, we'll see those in in just a moment. But um, what actually happened then a couple of days later with these mines that were uh, laid? Well, you see, when the irregulars got in first, they actually used the record treasury as a bomb factory. It had a fine big central aisle and was a good place to sort of sit down and put your bombs together for defensive purposes. But they had appreciated the defensive weakness of the building, and there were vacant bays at the west end of the record treasury into which they put two extremely big mines. And when I say big, I mean they would each have been a little short of... half a ton. These were big. The resulting explosion, seen by a professor from Trinity who was living in Hoth up in the Bailey and just happened to be out walking his dog, from his description, must have looked rather like a mini Hiroshima, a great big mushroom cloud over the public records office with bits and pieces of parchment and paper and this and that floating around in it. So in fact it was, you might say, raining bits and pieces of history on Dublin that particular day. Yes, it was raining bits and pieces of history on Dublin on the 30th of June, 1922. These bits and pieces, these pathetic little charred fragments of parchment, if you consider what was originally there, it gives you a very complete picture of Irish life as it was basically from 1300 onwards. You can't replace that. It's part of us. It's part of our being and our inner national soul. And it just hasn't got a monetary value. If it's gone, it's gone. And very often it can't be replaced. Mind you, I'm pretty sure that rather more survived than was actually turned in by the public. Because from the the contemporary descriptions, quite literally bits of parchment were littering around Fairview Strand, littering around Dunleary, and various other places. So it was quite a wide dispersal. Can you give me an idea of some of the stuff that might have gone up on that particular day? Oh, I can tell you quite a lot of the things that went up on that day. Most of the exchequer records of the Middle Ages and the early modern period were carbonized. Most of the records of the Court of Chancery and the Chancellor's Office went. All of the census returns from 1821 to 1851 went. And if you're a genealogist, you'll know that that makes you spit blood. Lots and lots of court records went. Records of private courts in liberty jurisdictions went. Records of Queen's Bench Courts went. Records from the Custom House going back to the beginning of the 18th century, which were down in the vaults on the western side, went. Records from the Hanaper Office went. I mean, one could go on like this till Tibbs Eve. So, in fact, these were the memories of the official memories of the nation, up in smoke. Up in smoke, carbonized, shredded. Well, can we go down and see now some of the uh, manuscripts which still retain bullet holes in them? Yes, and I think we can also take a look at some of the very rare things that actually did survive this archival holocaust. 
Well, in here, in a room just back of the reading room, which used to be called the old search room, we can actually have a look at some of the survivors. Now, this enormous volume here, this is the, one of the survivors from 1922. It looks like a, an enormous ledger, um, and it probably weighs... What does it weigh? It weighs a stone over a stone, I imagine. Oh, a little under a stone. Right, OK. Now, what's written on these pages here now? It's uh, written in black ink. Um, what is the provenance of this? What background? Well, this is a brief transcript of the entries of three memoranda rolls. Now, memoranda rolls recorded the minute details of the Exchequer, the ins and outs of money. And what year, what year does this relate to? Well, the three we're looking at here are basically the first four years of Edward II's reign, so they're running from really 1308 up to 1311. But this writing here doesn't derive from 1308, does it? Ah, uh, no. That happens to be 19th century writing, and these transcripts were done under the auspices of the old Irish Record Commission. So, this, this ledger here was compiled in the 19th century, but was based on the original 14th century documents. Is that That's it? right. The clerks doing this had the originals in front of them. Now, I notice that the, through the pages here, as we turn over, there seems to be a hole going right through all the pages here. And this is... Um, the work of 1922. Yes, I suspect it's a .33 calibre bullet. So this, this huge ledger was used to... Um, hmm, part of the barricade. Part of the barricade. And this is where a bullet struck it here. That's right. Let's see. Well, let us just turn to some of the pages here now. But the original documents for, for, for this, most of them went up in smoke as well. Oh, gone, completely gone, with the exception of two memoranda rolls, one of which is actually calendared here, and that's the memoranda roll for 1309 to 1310. So the originals for some of this, uh, one, a small percentage of the originals survived in this case. Less than 1%. 99% of all these documentation? I would say more than 99%. All right. Well, just out of curiosity, can you just tell me... I know this was copied in the 19th century from the 14th century original, but just can you quote a few lines there? It's written in Latin. Well, we're looking at what, would have been, what is the first membrane of the memoranda roll for the regnal year three of Edward II. And what we're actually looking at is the proffers of the sheriffs from the various counties, beginning with the sheriff of Dublin. Now, the sheriff was proffering in the exchequer. He had come in with a sack of money, and the money would have been partially king's debts levied in his shire, but also the issues of his own Shire Court. So I see, what do I see here? I see Roscommon, Tipperary. Well, we have this man, Simon Fitzrichery, who's the Sheriff of Roscommon, and he's proffering from the debts of divers the sum of 40 shillings. So he's trundled in from Roscommon with his 40 At shillings. At the beginning of the 14th century. That's right. Well, what's here, this guy is from Tipperary? Well, Walter, Walter Lebret is from Tipperary, and he's proffering debts of divers and various other bits and 40 pieces. Forty shillings again? No, forty quid. All right. Oh, that was a lot of money. And John of Athai, the Sheriff of Limerick, is giving you debts of divers and also profits from the county court, and that's twenty quid. These statistics in themselves, they sound very dry, but in fact, uh, to an historian, they're... The, it's the oh, they're gold dust, because you can actually work out, even from this page, such an awful lot about early 14th century Ireland. For instance, it's worthwhile maintaining a sheriff in the royal county of Roscommon. Now, if you asked a man on the street what was the state of Roscommon in 1310, he'd probably say, ooh, lots, lots of Gaelic chieftains, not an Englishman in sight, not an Anglo-Irishman in sight. But here is Simon Fitzrichery, solemnly coming into the exchequer from Roscommon with his 40 shillings in his hot little hand. 
And this is what you referred to earlier as the memories of the state in, in, pa in, in paper. Quite. And this is one of the ledgers that luckily survived, apart from the bullet holes. That we can, can we just see, as a matter of interest, how deep that bullet oh, hole it goes, th goes through the volume? Goes through the whole volume. Mm -hmm. oh, that's and in fact, it's two bullets. Oh, it's two bullets? Yeah, because this wasn't originally bound as a single volume. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. This would have been bound, um, I think, as two. Where are the bullet holes there now? It's, uh, some of the words, of course, are missing where the, where the hole is, but I mean, how difficult is that to. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Um, here it would be rather difficult because you're talking about being well into a piece of text. Yeah. But over here, for instance, this is um, an entry concerning a particularly corrupt Sheriff of Meath, Rory Fitzjohn. And you can guess this is Memorandum Quad Ad Blanc. Blanc, that's, now, where, that's where the bullet hole is. <laughs> the start of Blanc is S-E-C-T-A. And then it's blunk. Yeah. Now, I would imagine that the beginning here is actually sectum. So it's a memorial that at the suit of, ad sectum, and you can see here a H. And we know his name is spelled R-I-R-I-C-H. So it would be Memorandum Quad ad sectum Rurik Phil Johannes. Now, what have we got here by way of survivor? Well, this is a narrow oblong green box looks like leather. In actual fact, it's very hard cardboard covered with a man-made sort of melanite-type substance. You're, you're taking off the cover now. Taking off the cover, and I'm opening the inner portion of the box, which has got up like, oh, like a photograph album, really. With, with uh, oblong pages? Oblong leaves, and on these leaves have been mounted substantial fragments of very, very charred and grotty parchment. And the charring took place in the... In the charring hall. is the fire, and the tearing and the rupturing here is almost certainly explosive damage. What century is this from? This is 15th century. It's from the reign of Edward IV. How much other material like this... This, this has now been preserved, um, and, and, and obviously preserved very cautiously and carefully and professionally. How much material like this would have been lost in the... Uh, fire? Oh dear, that re it really rings my heart to say this, but you're looking at one roll. Now, thousands of rolls like these were lost. And this is the stuff of history for the historian? This too. is the stuff of history. Each individual entry is trivial, and it says that John Bloggs was fined for X, and John Bloggs came from such and such a county. But if you add together all the little entries about all the little John Bloggses and start playing with them statistically, it's quite remarkable what they will tell you about a country. Now, have you got any other reminders here that of that date in 1922? Well, you can see here what the destroyed stack actually looked like. And it's a very orderly thing. It looks this is an old photograph now. It is. This is a 1914 photograph. It looks like the... Uh, if, I, if somebody's asked me to have a look at this, I'd say it looks like the interior of a prison. It's got uh, sort of cast-iron uh, balconies, uh, one, two, three, four stories high with a sort of stairwell in, in the centre. But all this, this was the interior of the public record office? This was the interior of the stack. It, it must have contained an enormous amount of material because it, it looks quite, quite oh, enormous. It did, and most, most of that area was full, with the exception of a little bit down there, which is where the mines were put. And most of the material within this complex would have been lost? Well, what you're looking at now, 
when the man who was running the public records office in 1922 saw it after the explosion, it was just a mass of charred beams and twisted and contorted bits of cast iron. And the debris on this floor down here wasn't actually cleared until 1924, and there were still booby traps all over the place. You have here a photograph of the man who was in charge of the public record office at the time. His name, I see it written here, was... Herbert Wood. Is that in his own handwriting there? That's in his own handwriting. Okay, it's an old photograph. 1914. Okay, he's got a... What has he got? A butterfly starch collar, bow tie... The technical term is a wing collar, and he's got a little cravat. He's wearing a pair of pince-nez spectacles. You can see he's got slightly worried eyes, a receding hairline, and a rather sparse little moustache. He's English... He's English. Uh, but uh, in nine, and when did he become the deputy keeper here? That's that's deputy in this sense means that he's top dog. Top dog, yeah. He became deputy keeper here in 1921, and he entered the civil service in 1894. And his first posting was to the record office, where he stayed all of his civil service life. So he's put in charge of the public record office in 1921, and then a year later, the whole thing, his dreams go up in smoke, literally. That's exactly what happened. What effect did the explosion here and the fire have, do you think, on Wood? Wood was horrified, and it was a nightmare Armageddon-type image that he lived with for the rest of his life. Now, he stuck it out as deputy keeper for a year after the fire. He retired in October 1923, but in 1930 he wrote a very, very bitter article for the transactions of the Royal Historical Society which gives some indication of how clear and how nasty the images were that were left in his mind. Here he's talking about his record treasury. The rebels retained possession of the record house and treasury, the latter of which was turned into a manufactory for bombs, for which the large, spacious building of the treasury made it particularly suitable. And you can hear the irony and the bitterness in the way he's describing what should have been an archival stack being turned into what, to his mind and what to any sane historian's mind, is almost a black mass of itself. It must have been awful to see everything you ever worked for blown sky-high and turned into a mass of cinders in a matter of hours.